Welcome to the Purpose at Work podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Jacobson. This episode is brought to you by Guided. They help you stop employee burnout and turnover by providing great coaching for all employees so you can get out of the weeds and focus on building great culture. The best talent values learning and growth over everything else. They don't want to be managed. They want to be guided to realize their potential. So if you're ready to evolve talent development, make sure to check out getguided.co. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Purpose at Work podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Jacobson. Today, I have Eric Kostelnik. Eric is the founder and CEO of Text Recruit, and he's an award-winning entrepreneur, sales leader, and advisor that has built and managed multiple technology companies. So welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Spencer. I was particularly interested in this one in part because I was a power user of Outreach.io for a couple of years and huge fan of that platform. And just looking forward to picking your brain on a lot of subjects today so that we have a lot of different intersecting paths. Yep. And I'd love if you could start out and share a little bit more about your work, what you're up to now, text recruit, and then we can dive in from there. Yeah, sure. I currently am the CEO and, and uh, founder of Text Recruit Incorporated. I started Text Recruit back in 2014, built the company up to, you know, we're, we're going to finish this year around $15 million in revenue. We did go through an acquisition in January, so we were acquired by iSIMS, which is the largest recruiting technology company in the world right now, and it's coming up on about $200 million in revenue, and ultimately was you know, purchased, the majority share was purchased by Vista Equity about two months ago. So a lot's been going on over the last 12 months, including selling my baby, but it's been an incredible ride here over the last you know, three, four years. And I think all my experience in other startups and in big companies and throughout my career has kind of led me to this. And I'm just excited to share some of the stories and hope people can listen and, and learn and, uh, and ultimately you know, get ready for the next thing that I'm going to do. So we'll see. Congratulations. That's a massive, massive step. I'm sure. Well, I do yeah. want to. I do want to talk a bit about that a little bit later. Is how that's been. Any surprises there? In part because there's so much. I know as a founder myself, and there's so much buildup to thinking about this future thing that we're working towards and saying, "Oh, it's all going to be great then." So, anyways, I'm hoping yeah. you can dispel some of that with me. Keep it real. Terms yeah. Of how, how, how things have been. I want to go back and start where it began a little bit, Eric. Clearly entrepreneurial, creative guy. Seems like sales has been in your blood a little bit. Where did all that begin for you? Yeah, well, I think it's funny. You hear people talk about how they're born with sales DNA. And I think that that's probably true to a sense, like who your parents are and how they influence you. For me, I would say that sales DNA was probably a little bit born with, but more of experience along the way. I, I moved about 10 times before I was 13 years old across the country. I was always the new kid. You know, I was, I'm a big guy. I'm 6'6". Six, six. I was, you know, 6'2 by the age of 12. So like I've always wow. been, yeah. <laughs> so I've always been kind of a standout character when, you know, being in new places. And ultimately I, I had to either go one way or the other. And that was, you know, I could be the shy, you know, tall guy and rely on, you know, whatever athletics or where I was focused to drive me or be, out there and just kind of learn how to make friends and 
try to influence people. And, and ultimately, uh, that's what I had to do. It was, it was your requirement because I needed that. I needed those friends and those people around me to make sure that they kept everything as calm and kind of give me some equilibrium with so much change. So I ended up in New Jersey and went to school, played basketball in high school and went to school uh, at Shermansburg, got a basketball scholarship and decided to continue going down the path of basketball along my life, but stopped playing college. And then ultimately got to you know, my graduation and spent some time in Europe, right? So kind of tried to find myself over in, in Ireland and I was playing music at the time as well, picked up the guitar. And so I was performing over there for money and selling apartments at night. This was in 2001. And then ultimately came back and September 11th had happened. So obviously massive change within uh, the marketplace. I was a finance major when I was going to go work in New York City, but a lot has changed, you know, at that point in time. And so we, you know, as a family kind of got together and tried to figure out what the best path was for me. And I had to, you know, kind of calm down a little bit. I had to figure out which direction I really wanted to go in. And, you know, in preparing for this conversation, it's interesting, you know, you think about what are some of those starting paths of like actually you know, what you do in order to get you to the next thing or get you to where you eventually want to be. And I made one very early on. And when I was 21, I moved to Baltimore and I was a bartender. So after I came back, I was like, you know what, I can't, I can't do this. I can't make a decision of going up to New York or getting into something that I just don't know if it's for me. And there's so much turmoil in the world, like I got to figure out myself first. So, so I went and bartended for like six months and then, you know, had fun down in the Inner Harbor in, in Baltimore and met a ton of people and and then I started interviewing during the day. So I started getting interviews down in, in Washington, D.C. And, and up in New York and, and Philly. And, and so I remember very vividly taking a train up to New York to interview with this investment banking company. And it was, have you ever seen the movie Boiler Room? I literally was just about to say J.T. Marlin before you said that. It was like exactly that. It was called Sands Brothers Incorporated. And you have to remember like, so this is like October now right? I'd moved. And then so it was like three months into it, three, six months after I moved, I started interviewing stuff and talking to people. So there was still like ashes, you know, rising from the building that had fallen. And like, there was obviously there's still so much going on, chaos that was going on. But these guys were like, hey, we're going to keep going we're gonna keep rolling. Like we want you to come up. And so they got a bus for me and I came up. Anyway, I get up there and like, it totally is that scene, right? They're all in that boardroom. And like, there was literally like all these interns potentially in the boardroom and like all these, all these interviewees and they did the speech and everything. And then they literally like took you through this, like basically like three hour process of interviewing people. And there's two people up, it was me and this other guy. And I remember very vividly, like being like, stoked because I was very competitive and I'm like, yeah, I won, like I'm ready to rock. Right. And so I got in there and they're like, you got to meet with Michael Sands, who's the president of the company. And I go in and it's this massive corner office that is overlooking all of New York city. And it has a direct view of where the towers were. And literally it was like, you know, flaming up and, or like it's not flaming, it was like, you know, smoking and there were ashes still rising up. And it was pretty crazy. Like I started the conversation and I just kind of stopped the list, man, this is really surreal for me right now to see the fact that like you know all these people died and like and we're right here and it's just like it's, it's such a, a shame of what happened and he's like yeah those motherfuckers killed my view and i was just like what this is an actual like leader saying like that comment and like i will that dude that was like what that was like 17 years ago right and i still remember it so vividly that it's just like wow so i can never be this type of person right and so there are things that you learn in your life that we're like hey this is like this is this thing that influenced me 
that just told me that like that culture and I know everybody in New York is not like that. And I just know that like that industry is not like that all the time, but it's very cutthroat, man. And, and I just said that, you know, that's not me. That's not who I want to be. That's, I don't care that much about all these material things. Like I got to figure out what drives me. And I know that's not it. And so I, I, you know, I, unfortunately I got to go, this is not who I am. And I just don't think I'm a good fit. And I went home and Continued to interview and found myself in a position that a company that allowed me to get out to California and, and try to be a part of what was continuing to be built out here. And so that's a little bit of a story that kind of shaped the direction of where I wanted yeah. to go. So, yeah. What a blessing that it was as bad as it was, because I can imagine right. that if you went and interviewed where the guy was more of a good guy and charismatic and, right. and that kind of thing that you may have taken that job. And the course, you know, your, your path may have been a bit different. I relate to that strongly as well, because I, my first job was at a big British bank on Wall Street. And it yep. was just particularly toxic compared to some of the other places where my friends were. And in retrospect, I'm really grateful that it was as toxic as it was, because if it was better, you know, quote unquote better, I may not have gotten out of there when I did. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, sometimes it has to be really, really bad for you to figure out like, yeah, this is not for me. Because it's easy to stick around when something's like, oh, this isn't that bad, right? But if there's any sense of bad, it's bad. Like, dude, don't do it. Like, there is so much out there. It's funny, I carry this philosophy still today with the people that I've hired. And I've hired hundreds of people over the last like six years, you know, with Identified and Reich and Text Recruit. And I always tell them, like, listen, dude, like, if this doesn't work out, it's totally fine. You're going to be totally fine. Even if the next recession hits and, like, everybody loses their job, everybody's going to be totally fine, right? Like, you have to go through these challenges in order to figure it out. And the thing that's really crazy now is that, you know, like, I have these kids that I've hired. And I call them kids, though, because, you know, I'm almost 40. But, like, I'm hiring these 20-somethings, and they've never seen it bad. They've never seen it bad before. And I've kind of pick them to join my organization because I've been connected to them somehow. And these, these early folks that I've hired, most of them have come through, like 90% of people we hire come through my connections or our connections that we create through the network that we hire. And I just, man, I think about it and I'm like, they got it. They hit the lottery, man. <laughs> like they haven't had that moment and they're in such a very, and I, this is a little bit, I don't know, selfish to say, but I feel like we've built really, really strong organizations that people have learned and like, really cared about and generally have created good culture that is transparent and challenging and people tend to do well and they don't leave, but they haven't had that really moment for themselves of like, this is not for me. Right. So I don't know. Everybody has to yeah. have that. Speaking of building and scaling a great organization, let's say specifically a great sales organization as well. Not so easy to do. What have been a couple of the things that have helped you to be really successful at that? And quick background, you've been a head of sales at Reich, identified, so worked with some pretty successful, large, growing startups and growth stage companies in the software space. And having to hire a ton of salespeople is not easy. Yeah. What's been some of the keys for that? Yeah, I mean, salespeople are the lifeblood of any company. It can either go really good or really bad really quickly. And so each hire is so important. And it's so important to create a diverse sales culture as well. A lot of companies 
you know, create these cultures that are like a Zenefits, right? That is just so broy that you're just like, oh my God, like this is, it's so far to that side that it ends up taking over. And it's very hard to stay away from that because there's a lot of bros in technology and there's a lot of, you know, locker room stuff that goes on and there's a lot of competitiveness. And so how do you try to find, you know, women and people of culture that can join organizations and people of different ages that can join sales organizations that actually can create a diverse workforce? Because that is important. It's really important. And especially now. And so I think some of the key points that I've found have been that number one is trust. When I meet someone and I've been a part of every single person that we've hired a text recruit, part of their interview. So text recruit, Reich, and identified, and then the team I built at Career Builder as well. I've been a part of all those interviews. And you can always tell, right? It's a kind of a gut thing, but you ask a couple questions that are around like something that you know or you know defines this person and you get a good sense of if you can trust them or not. And if you can trust them, a lot of times you're building these people from your network too, right? So if you create this massive networks of people that you know, then they just start coming in, right? And so you have that first trust level of like, hey, this is a good person. They know what's up. They come from a great family. They have had these challenges in their life. They've been able to achieve these things. They've been successful in athletics or music or dance or arts. Those are all like really important things that we look for in, in our people. You have to, number one, trust them. And number two, they have to bring something to the table that you believe can rise everybody, right? So rising waters lift all ships. And that's something that I really believe in a sales organization. You can get a couple of really strong people that add to the culture that are diversified from the existing people you have. And that really allows you to continue growing as a, as a business. So, you know, I would say like diversity, trust, having a network that can work for you. All those things are very important. When it gets down to it, though, you got to have a good product that keeps people around. And so those connections that you have to build between the salespeople, because you get them in, and I've been pretty successful in getting people in, but if you don't have that good product, it's really hard to keep them. And it's really hard to keep them motivated, even if you're paying them a ton of cash. Like cash is not the answer. They got to be able to have meaningful conversations and sharing that they're providing value to their customers because the best salespeople actually do want to make a difference. Like they actually like care about their customers' performance because they know they're going to come back to them at some point in time if they stay in this industry, right? Like in the industry that you're selling. So I don't know. I covered a bunch of stuff there. I kind of rambled, but yeah, those are some of the things I think about and that are very apparent in every sales org that I built. It's so true having the diversity of a sales team so that it can really be a cohesive unit. So you can really have diversity of thought and experience and a healthy level of competition and a way of working with each other and is so important and is really hard, right? Bringing it back to your story a bit, Eric, you know, I'm, I'm noticing some parallels because we've talked a little bit about how network really matters. You grew up and moved a ton of different times, right? And so had to really find a way to create strong ties quickly and use those ties to help yourself stabilize. And then also, you know, going to Shippensburg, I imagine not a lot of people out in the Bay Area have heard of the University of Shippensburg, right? Right, right. <laughs> and then your ability to draw on network to have trust established early or have that first level of trust to be able to scale and hire. So we'd love for you to talk about how those things have played out for you in building your career out in the Bay Area, leveraging your network and also not, you know, you didn't, you didn't go to Harvard where everybody knows yeah. that place. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think it's important because part of diversity is, is education. 
like we all can't go to Stanford and we all can't go to Harvard and Princeton and Berkeley and all these places. And some of the best teams and the best people I've built are those that, that don't have that big time formal education. They all have degrees because I think that's super important. But the majority of the folks have, have gone to, you know, all these different organizations or all these different education systems. And some of them have been very successful, even more than those that have gone to these big schools. So I'll start with talking about like how you don't really need to go to a big school to be successful in the Bay Area or in these big metro areas, but you do need to have something to get you in the door, right? And I do think that there's just a tremendous value to going to these established organizations that have these built-in, I'm sorry, I call them organizations because that's what they kind of are, right? These these massive organizations, it's not just an education. It's like, no, the Stanford system is so far reaching, but that gives you the end, right? And that gives you the network. And so there are basically like three places that I've been able to see that have been really successful for me of building my network. And you don't need to, to go to all these high universities to do this. Number one is is sports, right? So you move to a, a location you get involved with athletics, you're going to meet people that have gone to these schools or part of these companies that that you want to join, and you start interacting with them in a competitive way, ultimately that will lead to you building that network. The second thing is is music. I believe music is like a thing that draws everybody together. And I think, you know, when you look at these massive festival culture that's being created and, and ultimately like the way groups of people listen to music and interact with music, I think that that's a very easy way for you to create network and friends around the places that you want to work. And the third is bars and being social. You know, some of these things aren't for others, right? So maybe you're not a bar person, maybe you're a sports person, maybe you're a music person. But I really do think that being social and being out there and allowing people to interact with you in a relaxed setting, like they'll get to know you and you'll be able to build more trust with them. And so those are like the three ways that like, they sound very like, you know, yeah, that totally makes sense. But like, if you are looking to come to the Bay Area um, and you don't have that Stanford network or the networks that are out here, you need to really establish yourself and build trust. And that's what I did successfully when I moved to the Bay Area. I had a small little job selling fleets of vehicles from Baltimore. They transferred me out here to manage the business out here. And, you know, I was in automotive sales when I started, but I knew if I got out here and established myself and my network that eventually I get to where I wanted to be in technology and, you know, start creating the things that I really wanted to create. And it's tough to create and it's tough to start companies and start businesses without having experiences of working for those companies and, and learning from people that have done it before. And you're not going to do that by like sending a LinkedIn message to Reed Hoffman and saying, Hey dude, like, I'd love to talk to you. Like it's not, he's not going to talk to you. Right? So you can listen to stuff on the podcast, but uh, master the scale, but you know, you're not going to be able to have interaction with them and you need to be able to interact with people that have had experiences. So yeah, that's some of the ways that I would, I would help people. Eric, I'm also noticing a theme for you of putting yourself out there over and over again, kind of taking a big step, taking a big step. Some people say, yeah, it's easy for you to say, go to a bar and meet people for other people. That's the hardest thing in the world is to go to a bar and meet people. I'm curious for you around that, let's call it courage or whatever the muscle is for you around putting yourself out there. And we've talked about success being a math problem. It's not getting it right every time. Can you talk about that a little bit? And I'm also curious, have you always just been somebody who's going to put yourself out there? You're an athlete, so you're going to go for it. Or how do you work with yourself around courage and putting yourself out there for failure or risk? That's a great question. I don't have a lot of self-reflection around that. 
And I don't know why. And I try to tell my people, you know, you got to make sure you self-reflect and figure out like what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, and what you can do to get better, right? And that's something we always talk about. And I don't think I've been able to self-reflect on that because it's not something that I think about. It's just something that is innate, right? It's like, you just don't think, you just do. And for me, it's always been the, hey, I would call it, you know, grit. It's like, it's not going to come easy. And that you just might as well throw that out there right now, right? It's like, you know, it's not going to be easy. Then you just have to work harder than everybody else out there. And that's, by the way, easy to say than do. Many people have different challenges and different you know, family situations and different education situations that they don't allow them to be, you know, have the opportunities that even I did. And I realized that. I think what you have to understand is that you have to be focused into what you want to accomplish. And then you have to put yourself out there as many times and get as many no's as you possibly can until you get the yes. And part of that is understanding where you want to go. And so being reflective on what have I done to date and then where do I want to be? For me, it was like when I was in my early 20s, it was like I met this guy, Tim, who's working for EMC and he was telling me about technology and about how he was making so much money and involved with all this cool you know, stuff that was going on that he believed that, you know, that's where I should be. And that conversation and that like interest that I formed back in my early 20s was like, no, dude, that's me. But I want to own one of those companies. Like I want to be the guy. So how do I get there? Right. It's easy to start a company, really hard to, to make a company. And so I had the focus of like, okay, here are the companies I'm going to work for to get that experience. Here's the roles that I want to be in and kind of the, the themes that I want to work through within these organizations to understand how these companies work. And for me, that was sales. Enterprise software sales was how I would understand how companies worked. And then ultimately, that led me to getting as many noses as I possibly could in those positions that I wanted to get into and to try to get me to technology. And I, I was interviewing like crazy for years to try to get to a position. And it happened to be in the recession that I got a job selling job postings with CareerBuilder. Who takes a job selling job postings in a recession in the Bay Area? <laughs> like literally, like I couldn't think of actually any, any worse position, but it was in technology. And they told me that like, if I took this job, that I'd be, have an opportunity to get the leadership and move out to Chicago. And all they did was give me a chance. And they gave me a chance. So, but I had a lot of no's up until then, years of no's. But I knew that if I did some certain things that were very focused, that it could help me learn. And that's the method that I've kept today. I would love to hear about your take on work-life balance, especially as a founder CEO and also leading an organization of younger people who are creating their own work lives and personal lives. And I don't really believe in a distinction between those anymore, to be honest with you. Curious yep. about how you think about that for yourself. I imagine that bootstrapping makes life a bit easier. Yeah. In terms or, of, yeah. Uh, now it does. It didn't back then. <laughs> yeah. Having just myself gone through a, a year and a half of bootstrapping doesn't feel easy initially, but it's a really important conversation, I think, for people. And a lot of our listeners are people ops leaders as well. So having an understanding of the distinction of that and then how you think about how you want to create a culture for your people and what you want their work experience to be like relative to their whole life. Yeah, it's been an ongoing discussion with a lot of leaders that I know out there about what is the future of work look like. And I believe that it's changing pretty dramatically. And I think it's driven by the workforce that is, you know, we call the millennials. And a lot of people like dump on the millennials. I don't, I love my millennials. 
I'm a big fan. They bring complete diversity, different, you know, attitudes and, and experiences than I've ever been able to experience. So it's really good to have these folks in the workforce. But nonetheless, it's really, um, it's creating flat organizations that allow people to grow. And I really believe in, when you talk about bootstrapping, it's like you bootstrap a company and what does that do? It keeps something that should be where you raise a ton of capital on it and then create different layers. It keeps it very flat, right? So we were flat until about 22 people. We didn't have any managers. Everybody sold, built product. That was it. You sold, you built product or you supported the people that sold and built the product or the customers that bought the product. That's how we got to our first million in recurring revenue. And I think that that flexibility and that organizational structure allowed people to, it kind of feels like how you live your life, right? You don't live your life with a lot of bosses. Like you might be married and like, you know, you say, oh, I answer to my wife. But like, you guys answer to each other, right? Like there, you should be in a, in a relationship or a husband. You, know, you guys answer to each other. And so there, there needs to be like that flat playing ground. So it's just, it's a kind of a weird thing having a manager right? That like manages your life. And so I, I felt like we need to continue that structure of keeping things flat. And then people essentially would want to work here because they saw upward mobility, but they also were able to have flexibility in in their work. And so when we started creating layers, because eventually you, you as a leader of the company, you can't manage all these people. And when you say manage, it's, it's just like, understand what they're doing. I got to a point where like, I can't have this many one-on-ones and we can't, I'll be in a group telling everybody what they're doing. You have to have different layers of management. So then you actually have to be very cognizant on the type of leadership structure that you want and that those leaders are following the same flatness that you were putting on your organization when it got to the 20. So then what we did was we kind of created player coaches. And so those player coaches still were in the trenches, but they still were, you know, they were kind of leading the team in a flatness, right? So we kept these layers and we started these layers and we got to about 50 people that where we had player coaches. And then eventually the player coaches said, I, I just can't, unfortunately, manage all these people, right? So, or know what these people are doing and I have my book of business or I have my thing that I'm building. And so then you, then you had to give them the ability to start leading them like a CEO would lead their people, right? And so... We've empowered our people and our divisions that we've created to do that here at Texture Crew, which has worked really well. We've only had two people quit in the last four years. And you guys can look at our glass door ratings. Like we did something right here. And, and you know, when it's all said and done, and you know, my earn out is until July of next year, I'm going to take a few months to like really actually reflect on what we did here. But we did something very interesting because we took minimal amount of money um, in the beginning which allowed us to stay capitally efficient, build a profitable business that scaled once we did take money. We forexed it, you know, in the year that we took the money. And then we exited when no other businesses in our space were exiting. Now everybody's trying to exit because they see the recession company. And we were allowed to stay completely agnostic during the exit. So I kept on being able to lead this business separate from my parent company and we forexed it again. So like we did something right. And I don't know all the answers, but I know that this was right. And timing also is very important. But that's a roundabout way of like from a culture standpoint of like, you know, we have unlimited PTO, you hold yourself accountable. We have core values that we started, you know, in, in day one or call it day seven, right? We're just like, hey, these are the things we're going to live by. And we were able to keep those things really true to our business. And I think people have made this part of their lives 
and ultimately really been able to adjust themselves from a work-life balance to bring us into their family and their family into ours. So, What is the biggest challenge that you are facing now? How to leave a company that you spent the last four years building. I mean, that's, that's it. <laughs> that's a really hard thing. When you spend four years on anything or even just, I don't know, you spend a week on something, you have passion and enthusiasm with it, right? And it's tough, man. I mean, like, it's not my company anymore. And that's, as a founder, even though I'm running it and we're still agnostic, it's, it's a really hard thing to accept. And you just want it to be okay. You want to leave it. You want, to be, you want it to be okay. And so I think that that's something that's really challenging, man. And not many people talk about that, but it's a real thing. As we start to wrap up here, curious for you and your growth as a leader, what have been some of the things that you've done for yourself to be able to increase your capacity to the point of founding a company, building it, scaling it so quickly, such good glass door ratings, right? I imagine that you weren't always at this level of capacity. Curious if there's any practices or tools or things you use to grow into the person that you are now. So there's a few things. Number one, we talked a lot about network today. Surrounding yourself with people better than you is number one. Like this has been done before. Whatever you want to do, it's been done before, right? So how can you surround yourself with those people that have done it before to help you understand where are the trains that are going to run me down, right? That I don't even see coming. And that I think is like number one, is that you need to understand where the roadblocks are before they show up, because that is the stuff that just sucks energy. It just sucks your time and sucks your energy and sucks your focus. If you can figure out how to diffuse those things before they even happen, then the path becomes very easy to see, right? Part of that for me was operationally, how do I set up an infrastructure of the business and be very cognizant on what are the systems and processes and technologies that we need in this organization for it to scale effectively? And who do I need to be on my team to help me understand that? And so, you know, I picked Manny at, at Outreach. I picked John Cantwell, who was one of the top M&A bankers at Pacific Crest. I picked uh, Brian Thone at Reich and ran product at LinkedIn very early on. I picked Seth Shaw, who was my lead and, and built the the log me in business, took them public from the sales side of things. I was able to learn from some of the best people. And luckily they wanted to learn from me as well on, hey, would this work, right? Like, I'd love to work with you. I'd love to see if it works out, right? And so I think that is like, that's number one, right? Is that making sure you have the people around you who have done it, they trust you, and then you can listen to them and build a plan that you can execute on that removes the roadblocks before you see them. The second piece I would say is that, you know, we're in like really good times right now. I mean, it's the, the longest running bull economy. People are saying it's going to come to the end, but, you know, it's the longest running bull economy that we've seen as an economy. You have to prepare yourself for change and you have to prepare yourself for like worst case scenario. And so being an internal optimist is like, really, really great. And it'll get you passion and it'll get you people that will want to follow you and you'll, you'll get these followers. And if you have a great product and a great process from a sales standpoint, but you have to be a pessimist. You have to understand like, it's not going to work out. Where is it going to break? And what is my worst case scenario? And as long as you kind of have those things balanced and like really understanding that this is a roller coaster and 
you got to keep as even keeled as you possibly can during this whole entire thing. You also lose energy when you expel frustration or you expel too much exhilaration, right? So you have to stay even keeled. And Seth, a big mentor of mine, he now works at, at Envision running that, that business from a CRO standpoint. He always told me it's not as good and it's not as bad. You just have to be right in the middle. So it's not as good and it's not as bad. I love that. That one's a tough one for me. Yeah. As an emotionally driven person, staying more even keel while still having the full experience, right? Still feeling, hey, you got to feel it when it's good. Got to recognize, sort of take it when it's good, really recognize, hey, it's going good right now. It's not always going to go so good. So really enjoy that without getting caught in it. Or as you said, losing the energy of it when it goes up and down and up and down. There's another piece in that, which is from stoicism, which is negative visualization. That's what they would call that is if it's going to go bad, why is it going to go bad? And actually being able to, they would also call it dying before going into battle. Right. So you can actually, so you can actually be free to operate because you already accepted the worst case scenario. If that's going to happen. And it is true. You know, if, you know, you were saying earlier, if you're interviewing at a big successful SaaS company, you're already in the lucky group of people on this planet where you're going to be all right, even if things go south. Totally. Uh, You may not think you're going to be all right. That may not be your mental state, but you're going to ultimately be all right. And that's, that's another big one. I'm Eric, I'm curious as we wrap up here, anything else that has come up for you in this conversation that you'd want to, that you reflect on that you'd want to share no, man. I mean, this is this is a great talk. I mean, a lot of these conversations are very scripted, and you know, they don't get into the real emotion of what work is and about how building culture in companies actually what that means from an emotional standpoint. And I think that's very relevant. You know, like we talk about data all the time and about how you know all these numbers run these companies, and it's very easy to go and you know predict the success or failure of your business, which you should know, but companies are run by people and people are emotional. And I don't think that robots are going to be taking over anytime soon. So you need to figure out how to work with people and like what drives them and and ultimately how you influence them to get better and and how to separate yourself from those that bring too much negative or performing at the level that you expect. But listen, man, I mean, I think you've got some really good themes within, you know, your discussions and your past podcasts of, of how, how to bring this to a human perspective and how to, Make sure you create human connections with the people you're interviewing and then ultimately how they create human connections with the people that they're influencing. Um, And I think that's really important. So good job. All right. Thank you, buddy. And I'm looking forward to keeping in touch. Me too.